Hello and welcome to the Primal MMA Coaching Podcast, an exploration of the training and development within mixed martial arts. My name is Scott Sivright, and together with my guests, we will discuss how the science of coaching, skill acquisition, and human motivation can help us design practice more effectively. No matter what your martial arts goals are, you surely all want to be better. So, let's try to be better at getting better. Okay, well today I am talking with Coach Cal Jones from North Wales in the United Kingdom. I reached out to Cal after hearing him speak on Professor Rob Gray's Perception Action podcast last week. And it wasn't any old episode, it was Rob's 400th episode. So congratulations, Dr. Rob, and we thank you very much for all the hard work that you do. Now, when I was listening to Cal, my ears pricked up instantly because not only is he a judo practitioner and coach, he also just completed his master's thesis in representative learning design, or RLD. This is an area of research that I really like and I wanted to explore and learn more about. So when I called Cal and asked him to come and speak with me, he kindly and enthusiastically agreed. And here we are one week later. Now, as much as I love to speak to the sports scientists and the academics that come on, it's really great when I get a coach who's well-versed in both. So uh, Cal has a deep understanding of combat sports and clearly from this conversation, uh, very well read and informed in sports science and ecological dynamics too. Now, which is coming apart when I speak to one of my brothers from across the pond, the language gets a little salty here and there, so I apologize for that. I have also split the episode into two parts, as the one-hour scheduled chat turned into two. So more recently, I've been shortening up on the fluffy bios and introductions for my guests, so we can get straight to talking. But like many others in the skill acquisition community, Cal is always very eager to talk and share ideas. So if you hear anything today that perhaps tickles your plums and you want to get in touch with him, I'll leave all his contact details and info in the show notes. I really enjoyed this discussion today. I hope you do too. Without further ado, on with the show. Listener, listeners, please welcome Cal Jones. Cal Jones, how are you? Hi, yeah, very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So uh, as I spoke to you before, I'll retrospectively add the bio in and fluff you up beforehand, but we'll get right to it. I came across you originally, I did my ears did prick up when I saw you again. I thought you you, you sound familiar. I heard you originally on Stu Armstrong's Talent Equation podcast. Shout out to Stu, he's doing great stuff. And then you're recently on, which was quite an honor for you, I guess, uh, the 400th episode of Rob Gray's Perception Action. And it was a journal club. And I found myself, like I often do, just nodding and nodding and going, oh, this guy really gets it. So I reached out to you right away. We've had a little bit of back and forward. I feel like I click with you immediately and we're kind of talking the same language. So I'd love to just explore some of the stuff we're into today and uh, yeah, take it from there. There was a couple of things in particular I wanted to come from, but and I will put in the bio, but just give me a quick, quick, quick story about how you got into this space. Uh, yeah, so I've just finished my master's degree in uh, coaching, advanced coaching practice. Bravo. Um, and it was in Sheffield Hallam. So Sheffield Hallam is where Keith Davids is. Um, and he's kind of one of the high ups in ecological dynamics. He's kind of massively widely published. So I stumbled into ecological dynamics a bit more. I'd read about it before and I'd sort of conflated it with all different games-based approaches. So teaching games for understanding and didn't really understand the differences. And then I devoured the literature, just kind of read everything that there was. Uh, and in doing so, I spent a lot of time on Twitter pestering people that had written the papers. And kind of everything's 
escalated from there, really. I'm now in a position where I've been fortunate enough to force my friendship on a few people that are, uh, that are quite well connected in the coaching world. So I've stumbled into a few of these podcasts. Yeah, Great. So a little serendipitous, right? You just you kind of fell down a rabbit hole and took it from there. I got the Dynamics to Skill Acquisition book, so I'm familiar with uh, Mr. Davis, and I've listened to him. It, 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 it took me a long time to get through that. I really had to chew on it and revisit it. That is not for the faint-hearted. Um, nope. <laughs> now, I, when I revisit it, now I go, okay, now things start to drop. Now, I do that a lot with uh, Rob Gray's uh, Perception Ad podcast again. I go back and I revisit things, and things just seem to click a lot more. I thought it was understanding before. But now, oh, yes, and I pick up a lot. So I think it's always worth revisiting these um, resources, you know? Yeah, 100%. I completely agree. So your master's, um, you did um, your kind of speciality, and that's what we're, once we get our pants off here, that's what we're going to look into. It was a representative design, yeah? Yeah, representative learning design. So how you can structure practice tasks to maximize skill, skill development, really. Yeah. Great. And I just read your paper um, that you sent me yesterday. And I, I love the way you finished off with some rules of thumb. And I think um, anyone trying to dip their toes into the space or or get moving, I think uh, representative design can actually be, for me, kind of summed up pretty easily. I mean, there's a lot to it, but it can really be written down on the back of a napkin. And I think mm-hmm. it's a great way just to get the cogs turning and, and, and having a different perspective on practice design. So give me your elevator pitch. Uh, if you don't mind, and the floor is yours. A little bit about representative design and how it fits into our sport. And I, I, I will mention this in the intro, but Cal, you have a long-term uh, background in combat sports generally, but judo specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. mostly judo. Yeah, I did do a, a bit of MMA in two thousand and four. Uh, but yeah, judo's judo's my love. Uh, right. Yeah, so essentially, representative learning design is the. Uh, the idea that our practice tasks should rep- should look like the contest itself. Mm-hmm. So not a one-to-one, only do hard sparring all the time to get good, but we essentially take a slice of what would be in the contest situation. So let's say uh, guard passing, and we can create a practice task that has a bunch of the information that we need to actually learn how we can do skills in context. So there's a, there's a bit of a disconnect between people's understanding of how we learn skill and what actually is going on. The prevailing belief seems to be that we just drill and drill and drill and rehearse a move with an unresistant partner. And that movement becomes motor muscle memory or, uh, yeah, uh, which is a little There's bit our trigger word, right? That's our trigger yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah, I can feel my skin crawling just saying it. <laughs> um, but it, it's not really the case. What tends to happen is you're practicing a movement pattern that doesn't exist in reality. So in judo, we have, um, obviously, we're um, probably a bit more traditional than BJJ. We have a more direct route to uh, traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu. And the sport itself is from 1880. So there's a lot of sort of pseudo-philosophy attached to it. Mm -hmm. So some of the practice tasks, there's a thing called uchikomi, which is where you do half a throw and you turn back out. You turn back in for half a throw and you turn out for... 50, 100 times, and then maybe eventually you throw your opponent. Uh, and that and stuff like kata, where you're practicing moves in isolation, uh, there's a bunch of research that shows when you practice a practice task decomposed from the source of information that you need to actually become skillful in relation to it, it doesn't transfer. It becomes flawed. It's kind of a shadow of what we actually do. Mm-hmm. So there's a concept called perception-action coupling. 
which essentially has us a tuning. We learn to make our movements in relation to the stuff that's happening around us. So the, the term in the literature is we perceive affordances. Mm-hmm. So an affordance is just something that I can act on. So it could be that I'm practicing a little mini practice task where we're looking at guard passing. And I play a game with my guys called Touch the Head. Uh, it's a very imaginative name, I know. Uh, we'll have one person flat on their back. And all they need to do is keep their feet between you so you can't touch them on the top of the head. Super, super simple. Mm-hmm. It teaches an awful lot of open guard concepts. People are learning how they can control their hips in relation to an opponent. They learn how they can engage, how they can grip fight. There's a bunch of skills that you, or I, as a coach, can guide them through. And sort of, so the concept is to be a guide by the side rather than the purveyor of knowledge. So we try and avoid that. It's more about structure and practice tasks so that people can engage with them and learn more implicitly. And uh, I love the word you just finished off there, uh, implicitly. I, I do feel from my own experience when students don't feel like they've learned or they're not taking away, which we're going to get onto knowledge of and knowledge about, and when mm-hmm. they don't feel like they've in, maybe internalized something or have some kind of representation, they leave feeling a bit uh, perhaps discouraged and whatnot, which, which we don't want. And so the, the game now for me becomes a lot of reassurance, you know, the, the understanding, the difference, which we're going to get into. But in, a, in such a chaotic thing, let's let's stick on the pass the guard stuff. I, I agree. It's it's implicit. And, and you're giving them a very, very clear task objective and you're kind of sneaking all the learning in there, getting them out of their heads. Uh, they're not like myopic on like you have to do a certain technique or whatever. They're just finding a way. And mm-hmm. I think which we'll get onto my more delivery approach perspective now is is selling that not the technique selling that trust this and i hate the buzzwords i hate the phrases trust the process but <laughs> there is a process here yeah for and, sure. it, and when it when we're talking about uh learning implicitly learning through frustration through trial and error it, it's most definitely a process and it's a process that involves a lot of a lot of frustration so for me now, um, it's okay for me understanding this, but the delivery, the sales pitch has to be ongoing. Dr. Ed Collin, when he was on saying, I said, when, coach, when do you stop selling this? When do you feel like you have to stop telling and talking and talking ad nauseum about this? And he says, he, he doesn't think you ever stop selling it. Yeah, for sure. When the, when the dominant paradigm is just a coach tells you moves, you practice the move and then somehow you get better. It's um, it could be a bit jarring to people to come from that as a an initial position and then have a coach who's doing stuff that looks pretty hands off. You know, if I'm setting a practice task that I've designed so that there are plenty of opportunities for you to pick up on the relevant information and to learn to coordinate a sufficient action. Well, there's a lot of me walking around looking at stuff and spotting what might be going well, what other things I can do to change the practice task to try and elicit a response I'd like to see from you. But it's a lot less uh, top down. It's kind of a more mm-hmm. egalitarian approach. We're negotiating the learning sphere together rather than I have the knowledge. You will listen to me. Look, my belt's black. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a massive disconnect between the two. And this is, as you say, I think when you uh, explain to people, when you're forward with what is happening, you explain it. I use an almost offensive amount of analogies when I'm trying to explain stuff to people. So the, I'm not the above, was... I'm not above offensive amount of analogies myself. So, <laughs> and they don't all, they don't all hit. I can assure you that. 
No, I aim for about half. Half hit and half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the one I always think of is something like uh, juggling. Mm-hmm. So if I tell you the process of juggling, you hold two balls in one hand, a ball in the other, you throw one up. When it's at its highest point in its arc, you throw the next ball up. And then when that's at the highest arc, you throw the next ball up whilst you catching the other one. Well, that's that's how you juggle. I have now taught you how to juggle, but you haven't learned how to juggle. I've given you the explicit knowledge of what juggling is, but it's not an internalized thing. Your body hasn't learned that skill set. So practice should be in a position that we're not just feeding people an answer. We're getting them to uh, negotiate the pathways themselves. Uh, I think it's a really it's a really important thing that we miss all the time. There's a there's a really good uh, I think it's W. B. Yeats Yeats quote that is education is not the filling of a pail, it's the lighting of a fire. And I think that rings so many bells for me and the ecological approach. We're not just filling people's heads with moves and then throwing them out on a mat and saying, right, you know the moves, go do it. We're lighting a spark. We're getting them passionate about learning these things and we just guide them towards solutions. So it might be that when they're doing their knee cut a pass they're too close to their opponent's center of mass and they're being counter swept consistently well i don't need to get them to drill a knee cut pass like 50 times in a row they know the move they have mm-hmm. seen it before it's not a case of rehearse it until you can't do it wrong it's attuned to what is actually happening it's not they don't know the move it's that the person that they're fighting is doing stuff that they haven't been able to overcome they're not good at the dance rather than not knowing the dance moves mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I, I love that, and I'm also not above cheesy phrases myself. So uh, I like mm-hmm. that the old the old flame and spark stuff, and I, I really like that analogy because no one no one would expect to juggle right away, yeah. and I, and I feel there's this there's an impatience with learners that if they don't get it right away, ah, it doesn't work. All right, what did we do? Let's get back to the drilling. Let's get back yeah. to understanding <laughs> exactly what we do. And I do think there's a place for this. This is something that. I still really struggle with and every time I feel I'm I'm getting a better grasp of concepts of ecological dynamics, I feel like I peel that onion layer back and fuck, here's another one. And (laughs) I just listened to, you were on, it was one of your um, podcasts, you were on the Rugby Coach. I don't know if you listened to Rob Gray uh, recently was on it. Yes. I forget, forget, I'm doing him a disservice. I forget the name. He's very... Michael Ashford. Michael Ashford. Okay. So they're yeah. both clearly very informed and well-read. I can't shake this off, although I'm trying. I can't shake this off that there's some kind of mental representation. <laughs> However, and I don't know if you feel like you're uh, in a place to, to, to help me with that, but can we at least say there's it for me, I, I think Rob called it even directing intention. Is it perhaps just giving you an idea of what the end goal or the task should be like and then you go out to explore that i'm always playing devil's advocate is that maybe a, an idea to hey let's just drill this four or five times and get this kind of i'm i'm, I'm reluctant to use the word mental models because i feel like you know i get my, my snout slapped for that but <laughs> is there something there that it could then at least be directing a focus of intention yeah so rather than it being a mental model so a mental model sort of makes it puts you in mind of schema theory of yep. uh, Schmidt having uh, a, a pattern in your head, a motor program that you just need to recall and then deploy in context. And then it becomes about parameterizing that motor program rather than a literal perception action coupling environment, mm-hmm. uh, which 
it's it tripped me up initially because I was a big fan of um, John Kessel. He's a volleyball. Yep. Coach. Uh, John's been on a guest of the show, and I love. Oh, I love there you go. John do. Yeah, but, and stupid. He, he he seems to have his feet in both camps. Yeah, so he he really stresses the parameterizing part. But I think he was one of Schmidt's um, undergrads, so mm-hmm. it must be difficult to to not <laughs> to just cut all that. So sure. I completely understand it. But he was talking on one of his one of the things I listened to him, where he's talking about how he had to make his practice session designs look what would essentially be a constraints based thing. He was doing a bunch of stuff where he was not giving explicit instruction of this is what the kinematic is. Uh-huh. He was setting practice tasks so that there would be an emergent solution that people would do. Yeah. But he was still talking about how there was a right. general motor program and it yeah. was just parameterizing. It was, but I don't think that's the case. I think that you, the, the, you, the reaction times that we have are far too low for it to be able to potentially even have any kind of recall like that. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't remember the move that I was mm-hmm. taught that is stuck in my brain somewhere send that on a loop and somehow use that to coordinate my actions it's there's it sort of begs the question a little bit later on as well you know when and this is what about, rob talks about it, it just moves sure. the problem right it just moves 100%. the problem you're not explaining anything by it yeah yeah yeah. it's so perception action coupling has direct perception so i'm moving in relation to the information that i'm picking up as a one-to-one whereas when you have these internal representations my brain does computer work it does some higher order maths insanely quickly and then magically my body coordinates in relation to the stuff that i'm Mm -hmm. working out with my brain so i don't think that uh, mental models is is quite right this is what i was talking about the other day i'm I'm not very proud of myself i spent far too long this weekend squabbling back and forward on facebook with the muscle memory crowd and they can't have it both ways no you have the muscle memory that has this, that we're, we're repeating, repeating, repeating. We have this automatic habitual movement and then boom, and there it goes. Uh, Rob likes to talk about that, the analogy of a ballistic missile, right? We aim, mm-hmm. boom, set the fuse, bang, and it goes. Whereas uh, he talks about uh, the perception, actual coupling, direct perception, that it's more like a heat-seeking missile. We know that. So, but the GMP or the generalized motor pattern that, that Schmidt spoke about seems super plausible when you think about it right we're getting kind of the the basic motions down and we can just kind of compromise on the fly but again if if that was what's happening and i'm not suggesting it is i don't grant that but mm-hmm. what did what did the muscle memory crowd do with that it can't be a it can't be a fine-tuning and, and establishing yeah, yeah. this 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 perfect technique but at the same time we can compromise and adjust on the fly you can't have it both ways no, I completely That's logically agree. Logically incompatible. So this is why muscle memory uh, kind of triggers me. And I know there's something mm-hmm. going on, right? They, we 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 speak about the these local control laws around the body, and, and they're figuring out there's some kind of there's some kind of experience, mm-hmm. functional uh, relationship experience going on. And so I get when people use muscle memory, and I'm and if I think back, I probably used it a million times myself. But again, they can't have it both ways. Yeah, no, I completely agree. You're, we're in a position that if it were the case, that is just strengthen that GMP and deploy it when it's necessary, then doing mindless rehearsal would be perfect. But there's a bunch of recent, I mean, the literature is pretty overwhelming, but it's not that effective. So as it, I also enjoy arguing with people on these things. So my, my, uh, my medium of choice is normally Twitter. Uh, but I've had this sort of debate with quite a few people and the people who were on the other side of the debate 
uh, deny they're on the other side of the debate sometimes, but they are the people who are in favor of an information processing approach mm -hmm. or a mixed methods approach, which is information mm -hmm. processing. Consistently, I'll put to them practice tasks that people use commonly in judo and BJJ and ask them whether this is what they're talking about when they're talking about information process and practice. And almost always, without fail, it will be, no, this is just bad coaching. So it's not that we're arguing from... Sorry, some... sorry, I, I don't know if I quite follow. What do, you, what do you mean by bad coaching? Can you just reframe that or rephrase that, what you were saying? Yeah, so there's, there's the divide in the the coaching sphere between information processing sure. and ecological dynamics. So whether and, information... and, and again, compare and contrast briefly. Yeah. So information processing is where we have to do brain work to work out what we need to do based on the information that's coming in. Mm -hmm. So information is what's called non-specifying. It comes in, my brain does some high order mental maths, and then I do something at the end of it. Mm -hmm. When we have specifying information, when my brain can directly work off the stuff that's coming in, all of that mental work or the brain work that we're not doing, in my opinion, just goes out the window. I just, I move in relation to what you're doing. You know, if we're in a dance routine, I don't have to memorize what you're doing. I know that you come close to me when you're coming close to me, I can see you get close and I go, oh, and I just back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were saying that they can't coexist, right? Increasingly, I'm finding that my uh, little throwaway phase was I wanted my cake and eat it. Because yeah, I was, yeah. I, I read Schmidt's work in the motor program and manual. And for me, for, for a while, that was kind of my Bible, right? Yeah. And this is why I keep, I have to keep reminding myself, hey, I, I, I thought I was getting a good understanding of this. And, <laughs> and then I thought, well, maybe I can pick a little bit of both here. And I keep hearing Rob say it's oil and water. Yeah. Uh, it's okay yeah, to pick yeah. a side, but pick a fucking side. Yeah. And I'm increasingly on the, I'm increasingly on the ecological side and it's making much sense, but I, I'm, I'm really conscious of my own, my own confirmation biases and whatnot. So, I do try and play the the person I like to argue with most is myself, and I, I do way too much of that, <laughs> drive myself nuts. <laughs> but um, I'm always trying to play devil's advocate for myself, and I do break some of the the rules that, that we talk about. I, I, we still employ very very brief, short drilling patterns, and very brief, two or three mm -hmm. times, very very sparse in, in the demonstration and the details. But for me, again. And I may be using this wrong. I might have a not a full understanding. For me, it's direct in the intention, what we're actually trying to accomplish. And then boom, and then you go and try it. 100%. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was where I was waffling off to. Was we have this... Uh, we have, I'll out-waffle uh, you several times today, okay? <laughs> Don't worry about that. Yeah, so we have um, these... So intention and attention uh, mentioned in the literature quite frequently. And it's an area that needs a, a much, much, much more development in the ecological frame, in ecological psychology and ecological dynamics in general. So we kind of say that we're guiding where our attention and intentions are when we set these things as instructions, verbal instructions, when we do these, these kind of things. So, and the perfect example in my head would be something like high jump. If you've never seen high jump before, and I tell you, right, you've got to clear that bar, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to run and jump up and do like a scissor kick or you'll try and jump face first. It's kind of a counterintuitive thing to come, come along and do a Fosbury flop. Mm -hmm. That's why people didn't do a Fosbury flop for a long, long time until now everybody does a Fosbury flop, right? Mm -hmm. So as coaches, our job isn't to tell them this is the move, a Fosbury flop, and get them to rehearse that movement pattern a thousand times so that that GMP is absolutely yep. bolt iron rock solid. 
Yeah. But it is our job to say, well, there is this version that people do. And I can set a practice task that looks for that movement pattern to emerge and strengthen. But if they don't know what it looks like, what it is in any way, shape or form, it could be a really difficult job. So one of the one of the constraints we can use is a verbal instruction. It is giving them a picture of what it looks like. It is showing them the move. It's just how we use that will be totally different based on if we think that you're just drilling more memory, learning how to do the movement verse you learn how to coordinate your own movement pattern in context, which is what I do. I do the same thing. So I'll show this is our move. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I would go so far as to say, I think judo is probably a bit more dangerous than BJJ in terms yeah. of the impacts. If, if I've got a, like a 10 year old kid that's doing a throw carelessly, it can break a neck quite, quite easily. Yeah. So I, I do make sure that they have a basic understanding of how we can do stuff safely but I don't want them to do a thousand versions of it based on this idealized model that looks nothing like how people actually throw in context. You know, if I were to record a thousand ogoshis that are done in context, in, in an actual contest environment, they'd look nothing like the way we practice the move. It's a totally different thing. Yeah. Because when we do the move, there's a person trying their best to stop us. They're fighting against us. And it's about how we learn to self-organize our muscle, or well, our, our coordination patterns to overcome the situation we're in. It's not about knowing a move. Mm -hmm. It's about, so I always use this one as well. It's a little bit, uh, I think it's, well, either way. So fighting's not about moves, it's about movement. So mm -hmm. I think we spend way too much time teaching moves. It's do this move, then do this move, then do this move rather than teaching them a movement pattern. It's a movement set. It's a set of movement skills. If I'm trying to guard pass you, it doesn't matter what guard pass I'm using if I'm trying to go to the left. When you start framing and making my job difficult to go that direction, I'll have an opportunity to go right, mm -hmm. or I'll have an opportunity to go over or under. But the skill set isn't knowing the moves. It's being able to attune to what you're doing and coordinate my body to overcome what happens in that instant. So the, one of the big things with representative learning design is that we do our practice tasks in context. Mm -hmm. So it's the analogies I use consistently back to my analogies. I like the idea that we're learning to walk on ice by walking on ice, not practicing the movement pattern. I think I will need if mm -hmm. I were to go on ice on normal land and then hoping it will transfer. When you think of it that way, it's, it's obvious how ludicrous it is to practice right. a move outside of the environment that it's performed in. Or learning to swim, not in a swimming pool. Like it's just silly. Like I think everybody can can recognize that that would be a, a waste of time or a really inefficient use of time. Anyway, it's not the moves. It's not how I flip my arms and legs that make me swim. It's learning how I can attune to the water. It's how I can balance. How I can float. How I can propel myself forward in the medium that it's done in. It's the same thing when we do any sport. It's not a set of disconnected moves it's how do i attune to what my opponent is doing in the moment and how can i coordinate a response to that i think i'd go further and say life is movement hmm. and we kind of we think we everything there's a whole different thing going on in sport yeah i i, I love I, I love that analogy too and i'll throw the obligatory uh, bicycle one which coach kessler has talked about too kessel we could talk ad nauseum and chapter and verse about and drill the different leg movements and practice on a stationary bike you can't ride a fucking bike yeah and you're going to fall off after a few 
uh, and this is being demonstrated in the literature too, training wheels retard development. Yes. They slow it down. This is the crutch that we need to remove from our... So I think a lot of it, it also comes back to the kind of... Again, for me, like a, 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 it's a psychological... It's, it's much psychological now as anything. It's reassuring the learners. And I don't think we're saying this is a shortcut or skills will develop necessarily quicker. Although they might. I think what we're saying is there'll be a more robust skill set at the end of the day. A more creative, yeah. unique to the learner skill set at the end of the day. Whether it's understood implicitly, explicit, it doesn't matter. So I, I, I think, you know, we've been, I had the, um, I had the fortune, Carl, when I moved from my last gym because I had this vision, I had all these ideas and whatnot, and I wasn't able to have the full autonomy to do what I want. And I thought, well, I can, I'll try it, right? So I opened the mm-hmm. gym with my partner and my partner quit his job. And so it's really important now, especially in a combat sport, it's really important to have understanding. And I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke up people's asses. I've not just read some fucking book and I think this is the way <laughs> we're going to do it. I have to keep informing and educating myself because I take it very seriously that I'm, I'm in charge. It's an enormous responsibility, especially in combat sport, to be in charge of someone's development. So a lot of it now is this, the, the reassurance to people that, no, this might not get you there quicker. It might even take a little longer. But what comes out at the end of the day is a robust and relevant skill set. And so, again, most of my talking on the mat now is, is usually, you know, here it goes again, blah, 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 geeking <laughs> out on the mat. But that's my job, not to show you the techniques. It's to reassure you that hunting for them, looking for them, and having some kind of goal is the way we want to go. And before I forget, the, the you, you, you know the story, but uh, the Fosbury flop is a wonderful example of an equipment constraint I don't know if you know where that came from. If you've heard that, I'm sure you have. That they used to land on was it sawdust or gravel or or sand, and then they introduced a crash pad. And this was an opportunity now. Instead of landing on your back, in some hard wood chips and whatnot, and I believe Dick Fosbury. Although I'm not sure. I'm going off the rail here. I'm not sure if it was actually him that played around with this move initially, but that then became the most optimum way. And again, a good example of a, an equipment constraint. You couldn't just jump over the bar initially and land on your back. You'd have broke your spine. But the crash mat afforded the opportunity to try new ways. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Oh, yeah, there's a little bit of trivia for you. So that, that's apparently yeah. where, where how, what, what changed that when they started introducing the crash mat. Yeah, there's all sorts of these things in sports. MMA, you know, we, we tend to train with the big gloves when then we switch to small gloves for MMA and it's completely different and the reads are completely different. So again, going back to representative design, how can we, how can we keep that uh, action fidelity? So performance action fidelity, this, this is maybe just a little bit more um, focused on representative design. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's, there's two main concepts really that underpin representative learning design. We've got functionality and action fidelity. Uh, so essentially functionality is whether the information sources that are being used when you're learning to practice are representative of what is happening in the contest environment itself. So if I'm practicing a sweep, a guard sweep, and you're just sat completely still doing nothing, then the representativeness of that will be lower because in, a, in reality, you would not be sat still doing nothing. You'd be moving about and I'd have to learn how I could coordinate myself to make my movement pattern efficient against you. Uh, and action fidelity is where the movement pattern that we are performing is representative of what would happen in a contest environment. So 
uh, I'll use a, a basketball analogy because it's the one I always use. Uh, if you're throwing a ball into a net with nobody around you, the way that you throw that ball in can be completely different mm-hmm. to how it would have to be in an actual basketball game. When you've got a six foot six man standing with his hand in front of your face, you can't just throw it any old hell. You have to have an optimal launch angle. You have to have the correct uh, flight of the ball. When there's no one there, I can throw it pretty much a thousand different ways and be pretty successful with it. So when we have a more representative learning, we have a more representative practice task, the solutions that we start to see emerge are more closely tied to what actually happens in reality, which is important. You know, if I'm practicing basketball, we've probably all seen it, the person that does freestyle football or they Mm -hmm. do, I think the guy who was the, um, I'm not the most au fait with basketball, but I think the guy who has the record for the most free throw shots in a row Mm -hmm. was just some really old man that was poor at basketball. He just was really good at throwing it in. Like unopposed, he was the greatest ever throwing the ball in the net man, but was crap at basketball, which I think is a super important distinction. Like it doesn't matter if I'm the greatest ever driller of jiu-jitsu moves. It matters if I'm good at doing moves on people, right? So our practice tasks should look to incorporate that. Uh, when you're talking about the how it's a bit slower or it might be a bit slower to practice this way, but or, we have... Yeah, okay. Um, um, so let me rephrase that. Yeah. Maybe slow, not necessarily quicker. Yeah, for sure. No, I agree. So we're in a position that we have this nonlinear learning model. So mm-hmm. the way that traditional learning is done, it feels like there's building blocks. It feels additive. It feels like we have a syllabus. You learn this move, then this move, then this move. And bit by bit by bit, you become more accomplished and more competent. But this isn't what happens when we learn in reality. It's a completely and utterly scattered point diagram of how we get better so it might be the case that i'm doing a bunch of stuff and not getting a breakthrough but i'm getting a lot better Mm -hmm. but without any observable external thing that i can see that makes me feel as though i'm getting better which can feel really disheartening the opposite side of it is when we have this linear model where we just drill stuff you have these really brittle movement patterns you know if i've done the drill i've done my guard pass a thousand times against the static opponent, any kind of perturbations when the person on the bottom does stuff, or the person on the top, I can't remember which version I said, when the person who I am trying to do my skill on does stuff, it completely and utterly destroys my movement pattern. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer able to do the move because I haven't practiced the move in in a way that has any kind of reality to it. Mm-hmm. So the transfer for practicing these things in isolation decoupled from external sources of information is really, really low. It's almost negligible. Whereas when you have representative learning design, when we're putting everything in context, it might feel as though it's slower or that you can't spot where the learning is, but it's just because we're forging a really wide, strong, stable path that you can traverse. It doesn't matter if somebody moves their left hip three centimeters or they put their right hand up a little bit because I've come across that a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Whenever I've tried my guard pass, the guy that I'm fighting does something different. He's not rehearsing something. It's the reality of what's happening. We're actually fighting each other. And so uh, three things popped in my head there. Let's hope I can keep track of them. We'll work in reverse order. So I'm going to play a bit devil's advocate and push back here. It is discouraging, okay? So if you try something completely novel and new for the first time against like an active resistance opponent, the chances of success there are extremely low. Yeah. So the 
again, devil's advocate, are you saying we should just go uh, right away and do it 100%? And of course, that's not what you're advocating for. But you're advocating to scale somewhat to the, meet the learner where they are to have a relative level of authenticity and and reality. And over time, you can then increase that resistance. Because I talk about this all the time. Skills are always relative to the, the person you're with. I, I talk from a jiu-jitsu perspective here. A purple belt can just do all sorts of things to a new white belt and he can't do it to a black belt generally speaking yeah. so is that purple belt skillful you know it's it's yeah. uh, it's subjective it's relative to the the skill set you're going against mm-hmm. the second thing going back to that discouragement and i try to be generous with drilling because i understand too you mentioned that the transfer perhaps is negligible so yeah i remember the two things now is there a case to be made that a thousand repetitions on a drill might be better than four or five in a live context and getting discouraged and not trying again? I think there's a case to be made for that. And so is there a case to be made perhaps that quantity can supersede or it can be more effective than quality? You know, that we have to still get the reps in. And this is this is something I, I talk about. Of course we need the reps. Of course we need the reps. I run a kickboxing um introduction class i don't show them how to stand you know the whole your lefty or righty which foot goes for i don't care you're going to find out we have these natural attractors you, you don't yeah, want to yeah. fall on your ass it, it, it's going to emerge and it's amazing carl you know we first day i speak about this a lot there's no head contact I'm, I'm, we can talk about that later the ethics of of kickboxing but we'll play a little shoulder tap game and the way the footwork emerges organically over the space of a session is incredible mm-hmm. just incredible <laughs> And I, I used to completely deconstruct it, decompose it, and say this foot goes here and that foot goes there. And remember and keep this, and you're 45 and all this bullshit, right? And so for me, I've been able to increasingly find ways of games to tease that out. Um, oh yes, two things I've thought about there. <laughs> There's an opportunity cost with drilling, because the person who's doing the drill, which we understand isn't getting a great deal out of it. What about the person? What about the passive uki? They're losing 50% of their training time immediately. <laughs> yeah. So there's no mm-hmm. coupling. It doesn't, there's not, it, it becomes increasingly difficult to make a good case for drilling. And it's yeah, okay I mean, for us. We, we, we can fluff each other up all day, but this is the, it's so seductive. It's so prevalent. It's just, you know, it, it's right through this. It's permeated right through the sport generally that this is the way to do it. It's an enormously hard thing to sell. I'm running a school now that my vision, Cal, and this seems even ridiculous when I talk to people, my vision is to have no teaching <laughs> to a certain extent just be guiding and actually have no structure or curriculum and we're moving a bit closer to that and getting a bit more success with that but get people in who know how to learn and know what to work on and explore and i think boom you you it's a it's it's a superpower when you hand that to someone yeah well that links in beautifully to self-determination day there's a bunch of mm-hmm. research that underpins all that uh but i'll go back to your first point so in terms of having quantity Quant- over the quality yeah, for sure yeah. so we've essentially got it so that we're not just doing a open practice task where you have let's say we're doing sparring i might end up in a back take three times over an hour right mm-hmm. i'm not going to get the repetitions of being in that position that i would need yeah but i played a game with my guys the other day that i just called backpacks so we start with somebody on the back person on the bottom needs to try and get themselves out they can figure out a way person on the top they're not allowed to finish all they're doing is cuddling 
It's just the retention game. Yep. So they've got hundreds and hundreds of repetitions over the course. Well, not hundreds. They've got tens and tens of repetitions yep. over the course of the session of trying to maintain back control, of learning to keep their hooks established, of learning how they can body triangle, how they can transition from side to side, uh, learning how seatbelt control controls opposites. They've got a bunch of things that are emerging because they've had a slice of the game taken out, a practice task that is designed to saturate the incidents that they will be in that position to learn and they've explored in it some of the stuff they were doing was just ridiculous um as as you'll you'll no doubt know yourself when you set these practice tasks and trust people to explore the space themselves and not overly structure it not tell them the right answer they come up with really really creative solutions to stuff yeah that i with my frame with my action capabilities with my the way i move and the way i fight I would never do. I'm not going to do any inverty, flippy dippy stuff. I'm old and slow. But my little 60 kilogram guy, he's a freak of nature. He does mm-hmm. insane things. So if I just coach this is the solution, this is what I do, his game would be appalling. He'd be mm-hmm. trying to do six foot one fighting, not little 60 kilogram fighting. Uh, yeah, so taking a slice, setting the practice tasks so that you're essentially saturating an area that you're looking at and in that situation both people are active uh, a lot of the time i won't coach the person who's attacking the person who's who i'm looking to try and improve i'll try and structure the defender i'll give them tips give them things that they can start doing that the person attacking has to learn to overcome uh, which normally is the problem you know when you're when i'm practicing against the white belt a white belt doesn't move the way a person actually moves. They've not mm-hmm. done enough to be able to fight properly yet. And so, that can be a, that can be an issue in it itself, right? They're zigging yeah, when you're yeah. expecting a zag and whatever. So I think there's value for both sides too. Yeah, yeah. So when you when you kind of guide what the defender should be doing or could be doing or options for them, then it gives the attacker way more things that they can start attuning to. They end up having a more representative practice task again. Mm-hmm because you're setting the defender to do stuff rather than the attacker to do stuff. If I tell my attacker, just go out there and you've got to try and get into an S mount and then finish off with an arm bar. That's that's your task for today. Well, the defender might not be doing anything correct for that. They might be moving in a completely unrepresentative way. Uh, I think that, so I've seen people that have used these, these sort of setting practice tasks, doing condition games has been fairly prevalent i see it happening with people doing a bunch of drills as well Mm -hmm. one of the big issues i see is that they overly constrain practice Mm -hmm. so one of the one of the big issues would be something so to take it from a a judo world into a bjj world they'll have people in a position say you can only finish with strangles so we're on the back the only thing you can finish with is a strangle well when i say the only thing you can finish with is a strangle the way the defender defends Mm -hmm. is now not representative at all I don't have to worry about my elbows. I've got no threat of my arms being snaffled up and snapped in half. So my defenses are completely and utterly based only on trying to stop the strangle. And at that point, the practice task isn't teaching me how to fight. It's teaching me a completely different thing. We want to keep those options open. So I use sort of point reward systems a lot. So uh-huh. you win when you reach 10 points. Uh, first person to get 10 points wins, but you will get five points if you can strangle them, one point if you finish with anything else. And people like winning. So they they try and do the thing that will give them the most points. So you get to saturate the thing you're looking for 
whilst not completely and utterly handcuffing all their other options. I think Marianne, one of the um, coach developers for UK Coaching, has got a really good thing where she talks about how constraints should be handrails, not handcuffs. Uh, You're trying to guide people to stuff rather than shackle them and not let them explore spaces. Yeah, which is a really important detail. I think if... I love love that, Carl. Sorry. No, 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 I, just, I, I really yeah. love that. And I, I was I was wholly guilty of that before. And uh, something that m- might really helped me, and I've been using it a lot. Now, I learn, I'll learn a word or a phrase today, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pretend I've been using it for years, you know. I'll just, <laughs> I'll be using it all day now. Uh, I, I spoke with Alan Dunton um, a couple episodes ago. And this was a, definitely when I was getting into the constraint-led approach. You're exactly right. I was switching off everything else and, and like, almost myopically putting them into one space and that wasn't authentic either. What I liked, what really resonated with me is Alan said, you're not turning the volume off anywhere. You're turning up yeah, 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 in yeah. a certain place. And I like that. And it, it, it just it piggybacks beautifully on what you said. Okay. If it, don't be so, if, if you're so concerned about the choke and both sides are there, they're missing out on all these affordances. So I, I think that's uh, wonderful. I, I remember um, we can, we're, we're battering this whole drilling thing to death here just now, but, <laughs> And I want—I always want to be fair to the to the so-called traditional side, uh, but we get this a lot. What about isms that so and so's reached this incredible level by doing yeah. that? I heard you speak on the other podcast, and I completely agree. If we look at these athletes that have attained greatness or elite level, high level, nothing that if we dissect the training uh, regimen. The things that we think got them to where they are, none of that violates what we believe. A lot of it does. So I think we could probably agree that they're great in spite of a lot of the stuff they're doing. And you mentioned that the other day. Uh, one point, I forget the exact uh, answer you used. You were about combing the hair. I can't use that one now, unfortunately. You said <laughs> you could comb your hair for half the, half the session and you could be doing really productive perception, actual couple activities for the rest. And you end up having this belief that man, come in my hair work. I mean, I'm sure Messi maybe has a favorite pair of underpants he plays with. <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah, helping yeah. his football. So I think uh, it's, it's seductive to to do, to train this way and to keep it all scripted and, and clean and whatnot. But I think uh, I think superstition plays into it a lot. And this is why science matters. And then people, well, you know, but you know, and this is why science matters because these are these are controlled studies, mm-hmm. and maybe they're not wholly representative of what's actually going on in the field but it, it matters we have to you know i was in a conversation the other day and we're going over the place now about learning styles and whatnot i feel i have a learning style but when i read about learning styles you don't have <laughs> learning styles it's a myth so i have oh. this deep 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 understanding that i need to see something visually i'm a visual learner whatever the fuck that means right <laughs> I, I still have it i still have it but i know my rational side says, "No, you don't. This is a this is a narrative. This is a story you're telling yourself, and you're yeah, yeah, yeah. you're you're blocking everything out, and you're you know, it, and so it's this is why science is important to me, especially as a leader and a coach and whatnot. That we're not being fraudulent with the information we're giving out there. Yeah, it's really easy to give post hoc justifications for things. Yeah, I can have success and then look back and say, well, I'm successful because I did this.'" You see it all the time with um, billionaires, people that become extremely wealthy or people who are extremely successful, and they just point and go, well, all you do is just work hard. Look, I made it. Yeah. <laughs> but 
it's not the case. There's Why a, aren't you a billionaire? Yeah, yeah. It's like the, there's a talent graveyard that you never see. If you think that if you have a million people that are all doing BJJ, one of those million people is going to be the best BJJ person in the world. It doesn't matter what they do. They could be doing trash. They could be doing nothing at all. And just by sheer volume of numbers, one person in a million is going to be very, very good. So when that one person is good, if you look back at what they've done, it might be the case that they've achieved that through really, really amazingly well-structured practice tasks. Or it could be that they're really fortunate. They've fallen into a gym that has got 10 of the best people in the country training there. They all play about fighting for half the class, but they also piss about doing drills. They do a bunch of dead stuff. And then they look back on it and they go, oh, yeah, remember when we spent 15 minutes every session doing that drill and think that's what made them great, rather than the fact that there was a bunch of killers in the same room who were all feeding off each other. They were giving each other really high-level skills that they had to learn to attune to and overcome. And yeah, you, you get this post hoc justification. They can say in their own head, what made me good was this, not what actually made me good <laughs> was the other stuff. That's why we have this, well, one of the things that really irks me is when people who were elite at the sport as practitioners are fed elite coaching jobs. In the UK, we've got um, judo as a, uh, an Olympic sport, it's an Olympic sport everywhere, but we have an NGB. So the people who get to the top of the sport normally end up being employed as coaches by the NGB. I think that's uh, typical sure. across sport, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's, I don't, don't know enough about BJJ in, in a, across the world to know whether they, I don't think they have an NGB. I think they just had one in the UK, but I don't think they're hiring coaches and stuff. I think it's normally just the case that someone okay. who wasn't an elite coach in BJJ, uh, uh, so what, what, an, what, an what a player. Yeah, so what I meant by that, Carl, it's kind yeah. of the it's kind of the journey, right? Someone achieves yes. greatness or accolades or whatnot, and then it's just assumed they're going to be a fantastic uh, practice yeah. designer and coach, and so and it, it's un, it's generally not questioned. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a weird thing, but you end up in the position that because they were successful as a player, they either get given high position roles, they get given you are now a national coach for an entire nation. And if there's one person in that nation that becomes prominent, that becomes a good competitor, then it's a really easy link in your head to make mm. that, well, that ex-Olympic competitor, that ex-Olympic medalist, now has that really good player. So they yep. must be a good coach. They must be an elite coach rather than a coach to somebody elite. So this is the issue that we, well, I think this is one of the post-hoc issues is you can justify the practice tasks of people who coach good people because they're coaching good people. Right. When it's very difficult to, to measure value added. If you give me the best 10 BJJ players on the planet and I do nothing, I just sit in the corner and play on an old Game Boy and let them play about, they're still going to be absolutely amazing. Yeah. And when they win ADCC, everyone comes to me asking, oh, what did you do? Why, why are they so good? And I go, oh, yeah. And that has a compounding effect, right? Because and I've been saying this for a long time, Cal, and it sounds like sour grapes. And it's easy for <laughs> me to say because like, well, where are your elite performance? I hope to have them one day, but actually yeah, yeah. I'm not measuring success by this. I'm measuring success by hour for hour. How can I get the, the median? How can I get everyone to develop stronger, more robust skill sets? And at the end of the day, keep them engaged and fall in love with the sport. 
the the greats can walk in any gym, but I, I completely agree with that. I believe the fighters, the athletes, make the gym, not the other way around, or they make yeah. the coach sometimes, not the other way around. And it's just it's human human nature. Um, my friend just went down to Austin, Texas. He's training with the B team, which is great for him. You know, he kind of he's a pro fighter. He's kind of outgrown us. So he needed to go and sharpen his tools, and that's great. I know nothing about American football, but I use that analogy. They, they, these gyms then get the first draft picks, and this makes a problem even more challenging for yeah. smaller gyms. But then, but, but they look well. If if you're so good, if this shit you're talking about so effective, why are they not flooding to you? There's a lot more going on there. However, if I'm ever lucky enough to have that successful uh, environment where they're flooding into me, I'm going to take full credit. <laughs> no i agree yeah for sure yeah <laughs> that's tongue-in-cheek it's parallel to what i'm saying about my ultimate vision with the gym is to um teach people how to learn and let them go and what you said there about getting a group of elite guys who know who understand the principles of skill acquisition they don't need to they don't need to be re, they don't need to be spending their time in the books and that but if we can deliver enough of that principle and get them on board you're right for the most part, you could sit in a corner with a Game Boy, and and they're gonna they're gonna thrive. Yeah, so I think that uh, that good coaching still adds value. So rather than me sitting to the side and letting them having them know how to learn and teaching themselves, I still think that a coach designing more efficient practice tasks is a super useful thing. Then the big concept is co-design. When you get to the point yep. that you have people that are especially competent or even not you know you've got people that know enough about the sport to be able to realize what they need to be able to do to improve it's one of the things that uh, so there's a, a canoeing kayaking coach craig morris who's um, okay. written a really good paper again on wayfinding recently and it's something that he does with his guys he's uh, coached uh, olympic canoeing kayaking i can't remember which he'll kill me if i can't remember which um but um the majority of his practice tasks he's interacting with the people that he coaches and they're co-designing sessions they're looking at things they can do to try and have emergent solutions in the conditions that are appropriate to what they're looking to do it's not the coach says this is what you do and you go out and do it mm -hmm. they're negotiating what the best approach to try and get those development milestones is which i think is super it's a super freeing way of coaching Mm -hmm. you end up in a position that you're not this autocratic I, I appreciate that there are some coaches that are attracted to coaching for that there's definitely power trip I like to be the one telling people how to do stuff most coaches philosophy is my technical knowledge is better than you, his technical knowledge and I'm yeah. able to I've got more details than him and I know exactly how to show you this move I think this is the the standard uh <laughs> coaching philosophy yeah it's but again it, it completely misunderstands explicit and uh, sorry in, uh, yeah intrinsic and extrinsic um, implicit and explicit sorry mm -hmm. so me knowing what a move looks like me knowing technical details has absolutely no bearing at all on whether or not you can do those details or whether those details are fit for you so uh, like so Dan here Dan is a great example like so he's produced a, an absolute wealth of information for he needs to learn how to use details. he needs to learn how to use paragraphs or, and i would read more of his stuff but other than that <laughs> yes yeah uh, 
Yeah, but no, it's, no, it's... no one is no one is denying he has created an exceptional environment for creating high level grapplers. Yeah, hundred percent. And his technical detail, his knowledge of technical details, is really, really high. You know, mm-hmm. is there's a bunch of stuff that I've included in my coaching for sure, like finishing um, a Jimmy rear naked choke rather than just the compression retracted your elbow. I, that's something that I've never really come across. And mm-hmm. that little detail is really, really important. It's helped my guys a lot. But it's not a case of just knowing these little kinematic details is what fighting is. You know, I know that detail and Gordon Ryan knows that detail. Mm-hmm. But one of us is pretty damn good at BJJ. And the other guy says, no, I'm, I'm just going to coach today, guys. <laughs> yeah, there's a massive difference between knowing details and being able to coach details and actually implement it into your game. And the, the assumption that me knowing more technical details means I'm a better coach is absurd. I mean, I've got, I've got the internet. I can just buy a DVD from some world champion. If I, if I care, well, I can just YouTube it. I mean, there's so much stuff on YouTube that is just technical details. I think In, the days of the coach being the source of all knowledge and I think perhaps there was a case to be made then uh, my old coach Eric Schaefer he used to remind me he used to go to the libraries to get books out and have to kind of scroll through pictures and stuff I think there was I think there was a time for that I think these days I don't think they're just they've just ended I think they ended a while ago yeah the advent sure. of, the advent of YouTube yeah I, I can I completely agree I think it's important that the the coach has the knowledge and has the technical knowledge to to be able to design the games and maybe see things that are maybe perhaps a bit maladaptive and, and steer steer their uh, students away from that. Mm-hmm. However, I don't think, I think one, I think details are grossly overvalued. In fact, I don't even think they matter in the development stage. And I think if you continue to um, let learners explore and understand the sport, understand the endeavor, they'll find details on their own and they'll be able to polish them as they get more advanced. They stand the again. It's synonymous with effective coaching, and I see all the time twenty-five. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating here. Twenty-five details on this particular movement, while everyone's sitting around going, "My God, this guy's like a god. He knows everything. He knows where to fucking point your your thumb." And it's all horseshit. Yeah, of course. Quite yeah. frankly, but again, it, it's this is synonymous with effective good coaching. Yeah, it's it's a nonsense. Yeah, it's it's complete balls. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Have you, come, have you come across optimal theory? So you would need to. You'll obviously need to remind me. I think you sent me it the other day. Now, who, who's that? Is that Dunton? Uh, so it was on the MSAI's yeah, sure. thing that they had a recording of it. So mm-hmm. it was Gabriella Wolf. Gabriella Wolf. Yeah. Yeah, it's Gabby Wolf. I know one of her PhD students is on on Twitter and posts really interesting stuff, but. Essentially, it's just looking at motivation climates, scaffolding people's confidence, so making them feel as though they are not a ham-fisted cretin in the sport, which is useful. But one of the things that's quite interesting is how they scale instruction. So it's not something that is explicitly ecological dynamics, but Mm -hmm. they found that if you give an internal versus an external cue, there are different outcomes. So if I tell you, bend your knees or pull put your elbow at 45 degrees or lift your hands higher. Mm-hmm. Those kind of instructions have got much worse outcomes than if you give an external focus of attention. So push the floor away from you 
when you're trying to come up in a squat phase has a better outcome than bend your knees, uh, straighten your knees. So I think there's definitely something to that. When you give people these instructions with what to do with their body, it freezes and isolates all the degrees of freedom and it prevents them from being able to self-organize. If you're concentrating on making sure that your little finger is pointing at pointing due north and your toes are trying to find where the moon would be, you're not actually learning how you can coordinate the solution. You're doing some ridiculous thing that has no bearing again. So yeah, I agree. When you give these overly technical details, yeah. it completely and utterly has the opposite effect. You're putting people in a position that their skill set becomes retarded by it. Mm-hmm. They're hampered by concentrating on what their components of their body are positioned like rather than what they're trying to achieve. It's the the task goal is more important than where your elbow is and how your feet are pointed. And yeah, we're very guilty of this in judo as well. You know, there's a we have um, a traditional break in a balance when we're doing kazushi. We have a thing that we call a look at the watch position. So with the hand that's holding the sleeve, you pull your hand up kind of nose height level with your eyes mm-hmm. and turn your wrist to look at your eyes. So when we practice, when people, not when we, I don't, uh, when people are practicing their uchikomi, when they're doing throws, they're doing this break of balance, this really exaggerated high pull. And I've, I've played the game. Ask people that tell me that this is important to find me an example with it happening at any point in the contest. And it's just so rare. You know, they'll go to highlights and it doesn't happen. They'll try and find, oh, I'm sure they did it in 1998 in right. Crystal Palace, and they'll look for, and it just doesn't happen. These little details that we think are important aren't that important. They're not that crucial. And this is one of the earlier principles I came across, the external versus internal, and, it, and I, I'm seeing, again, confirmation bias perhaps, but I'm seeing day in, day out there, the, the results of that and how strong that is, how beneficial it is. And I hate to use the word science, right? I hate to use the word case closed, but I think it's extraordinarily robust data supporting external is always going to be there. And that's, that's Gabby uh, Wolf's wheelhouse, yeah? So mm-hmm. to go back to my example of the, I could teach footwork from a prescriptive yeah. bent and say, this has to be there. You can't violate that. You move in, you move out. This foot moves first. Or I can have a shoulder tap game where they're not even thinking about their feet. They're thinking, well, listen, they're not showing me how to punch or whatnot here. But for me, it's a footwork drill. I'm sneaking yeah. all that in through the back door. And I'll, I'll do it just even as an example. I'll give them a very, very prescriptive, internally focused task to do. And everything goes to shit. Yeah, they're in their sure. heads. They could cognitive load. And they're looking. They don't know where their fucking right foot's moving <laughs> or their left foot moving. And it's, it's so apparent. Yeah. Again, confirmation bias. But so this underpins a lot of the way... I'm trying to coach and my team are trying to come along now because even my own team didn't really buy it. They were like, this, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Um, <laughs> but they're starting to get on board, especially my partner here. He's starting to embrace it. But yes, I think it's extraordinarily powerful. And again, there's better ways and there's worse ways, but I feel oh, some of the games I make are I'm like, okay, I completely missed that one there. That didn't get the result I wanted at all, but I'm okay with that. So I go into yeah. class, I go into class with a, a, a loose plan and I'm okay. I'll even stop it and say, right, that, sorry guys girls that was a total clusterfuck let's try something new and i'll scale up and down from there and i'm okay making mistakes with that too i'm okay not getting the game right and then some games i went wow something else and then we'll stop and go look what just happened here such and such found this one and 
light bulbs are going off all over the map. Yeah, yeah, it's you've you've nailed it, really. I think that's um, that's very much the case. We end Top up best. in a position. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, a, a, an example. I've got a no gi class, so I teach a no gi judo mm-hmm. class because I miss leg grabs. So we have a no gi class, so we can do leg grabs again. Uh, but we were doing singles and doubles, just mm-hmm. playing about with the position and linking in uh, an Ochi, so a major inner reap and a O Koso, so a, ma- a minor outer reap, mm-hmm. all based on can you stand alongside your opponent for the single leg or can you make your penetration step between their feet to get doubles or this um, major inner reap, right? And the only thing I did was uh, toe taps and knee slaps. So can you put your foot on your partner's foot? If you can put your put, put your foot on your partner's foot, you score a point. Or mm-hmm. if you can slap their knee, you get a point. So that's Love the first it. round. Love it. And yeah. after that, it became, can you uh, put your ear on their stomach and cuddle their leg? That's mm-hmm. it. Can I cuddle your leg? If I can cuddle your leg, I can single leg you. Then it became, can I put my knee behind your foot? So then you have three different things you're looking for. Can I cuddle your, uh, cuddle your leg? Can I put my knee behind you? And uh, can I put my foot on the outside of you? So we've got a single leg on the outside leading into this outside trip. We've got a double leg on the middle leading into this major inner trip, right? And by the end of it, I had people who were in, who'd done maybe two sessions with me, and they were doing an absolutely kinematically perfect major inner reap linked to a double leg, and I didn't teach them a thing. <laughs> I just told them, put your knee behind your partner's foot and you score a point. That's it. Yes, it's a really powerful and, and, and way of coaching. And, and that's that's a craft of me. And you know what? It just makes it makes I'm even hesitant to use the word coach or coaching. It makes practice design so much more fun for the yeah. practice designer and the coach. It's Darn really it. creative, it's really fun. I'm not coming off oh, fuck what am I gonna show this series of moves and go around and critique it and make oh you didn't do that right, put your you know, left foot there or whatever. It's really enjoyable. But it's a leap of faith for a lot of coaches, and I understand that. And that's why, you know, I, I feel I come across increasingly because I'm maybe triggered by stuff I see online and whatnot. And I, and I, sometimes I, you know, I, I troll or I'm antagonistic because we can have these <laughs> we can have these long form discussions and really, you know, get deep into it and and really think critically. But the engagement you're going to get is off some stupid Facebook comment or some <laughs> fucking meme that you put on, and that's just the reality. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one the other day, I think, I, I don't know if I sent you a link, the one on Facebook, uh, the, the Bart Simpson meme, meme about warm-ups being a bunch yeah, of horseshit, yeah. the traditional warm-ups. Everyone it's knew what I meant. Everyone knew what I meant about the traditional warm-up. There was no need to define or explain it. It was running in circles, high knees, shrimping, the sacred shrimp. And then, it was, <laughs> and of course, I get the, the same pushback from everyone. Two things I've got there. So uh, and I can talk a little bit about that. Three or four people... Out of the whole thing, it went back and forward. We're like, that's interesting. Why do you say that? Really steel man the argument. But part of me is like, well, if, if, if it took 500 comments and people getting triggered and getting a stick up their ass about it, but three or four kind of opened up to it. This is maybe, this is my, my calling in a way. You know, there's these wonderful academics and that. They've put their whole lives into researching this for us. It is for mm-hmm. us. It's for coaches like us. We should be reciprocating by bringing this onto the match for them. Yeah, I'm again <laughs> a bit of a fluff piece, but I agree. It's uh, so this is one of the, one of the things that is um, that Twitter is kind of famous for. These debates always seem to descend into well arguments rather than debates. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people get a bit tetchy about it. 
they any kind of conflict and they become a bit defensive they are awkward with it and i think you know i'm from a combat sport i don't really mind that you know i'm not no one's choking me i'm not getting thrown on my head this is somebody who said something in a bit of a rude way that <laughs> they probably didn't mean in a rude way but it's really hard to judge tone through text sure. like i'll i'll go to bed happy i'm okay it's not a problem All right uh, but when you have these debates and these arguments with people it's not the person you're arguing with that you're talking to most of the time that person has already committed they are sunken already onto their position and they're just telling you you're an idiot haven't we just, done that though uh, yeah but i suppose so they might be they might be saying the same thing they might be saying this guy is not going to change his mind but the other people that are reading are the ones that you're trying to get to so when i'm with if I'm engaging with somebody on Twitter, I hope that they are engaging in good faith, but experience has taught me that the vast majority of the time, they're just saying their position. As I'm saying mine, you know, I've, I've, I held that position once and read the literature and now I hold a different position. Right. So I can completely see why they think what they think. Mm-hmm. Like I used, I used to think that. So, you know, I, I, I empathize with it, but the people that are reading it, that see the discussion going on are the ones that are, the real target audience. And I've had a bunch of people that have messaged off the back of it and have asked for papers or have mm-hmm. asked for podcast recommendations. And you're right, it, it does. I'm not, I'm not generous enough to buy them books, or that, but I'll, <laughs> I'll give them podcast recommendations. Um, and it's, it grows the community. It, the more people that are engaging with these ideas, the better. I think that's, that's the, that's the so moment. Out of 500, if you, you turn a couple of heads or, or push a couple of people down that rabbit hole, it might, it might be worth triggering the other 498. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot triggering. I think most people, but some people are a little bit defensive, I guess. Like if you tell someone, I think you're wrong, I don't see that as being rude or blunt, but mm-hmm. it, I suppose it is challenging you. It's um, it's one of the one of the big issues. I used to have this issue when I used to talk on the judo forum on Facebook. I, I don't do that much anymore. But when you tell people that I don't think that the traditional way of coaching is the most effective. I think these things might be better. They don't hear the methods I have been using might be, I might be able to change them and become more effective. They hear, I've been doing this for 30 years mm-hmm. and this guy is telling me that I've not been doing it right. He's saying that what I've done could be done better. So I can see how it can come across as a personal slight. It's not your methods are bad, it's you are bad. And I never, ever mean that. You know, Anybody that gives their time to coach other people it's right. probably doing it from a position where they want people to get better, right? I think you're absolutely right. I think most coaches are, are good-willed. I think there's a lot of lazy coaching out there. I think there's an enormous amount of uninformed coaching. And that, that can be um, – that, that's quite rude, right, to, to tell someone they're uninformed. That's really yeah. attacking That's attacking their, their very, very, very being. But if anyone's even got – even the, the door's slightly open there for more inquiry, here's what I would reassure them. Every single person in this space, including the, uh, your Ed Collins, including your Rob Grays, we all came from that traditional descriptive information processing side. We had some kind of red pill moment, enlightenment, and just started looking down that way. So it's easy to change. It's not only easy to change, it's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary, it's very, <laughs> it's, very <laughs> it's very exciting. It's very creative. It, it, it's really great. It does get a hold of you. So the fact that someone perhaps had been doing it for 30 years and now to coach for many years doing the prescriptive stuff because I was copying what my coach did. And I think that's the natural progression, right? But 
it was always really important to me, especially in combat sports, that this is an enormous responsibility to take someone's time. And, and especially when athletes are committed to really getting somewhere, you could be leading them way up the wrong path. And that's that's an enormous responsibility. Yeah, it's it's huge. Yeah. I teach uh, kids' classes as well. I'm not sure whether you've got a bunch of kids' classes. But when parents are trusting you with their kids, mm-hmm. that's a huge responsibility. Yep. Okay, so that's the end of part one. If you're still listening and you'd like to hear some more, go ahead and download and listen to part two.